0: Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Matt Fuller, broker of record and co-founder of Jackson Fuller Real Estate in San Francisco, California. Today, Britton and I have a very special guest joining us one of the four original founders of Zephyr Real Estate. Zephyr is where Britton and I both started in real estate, and some of my earliest memories are of this guy yelling like a madman on the phone in the farthest back corner of the office. Our guest built Zephyr Real Estate from brand new in 1978 to the largest independent real estate brokerage in San Francisco with seven offices, more than 300 agents, and over $2 billion in annual sales at its peak. While serving as president of Zephyr, his creative leadership approach celebrated the company's unique, independent spirit, a driving force in its success. In 2020, Zephyr Real Estate became Corcoran Global Living, a franchisee of Corcoran Real Estate, and that, sadly, was the end of the Zephyr brand. Now retired from day-to-day operations and enjoying his time split between Hawaii and California, our guest was, once a collegiate wrestler is a U.S. military veteran, a fellow past president of the San Francisco Association of Realtors, and is also a husband and father. Joining us today from Hawaii is a man we've long personally admired, Bill Drypulcher. Welcome, Bill. Let's jump into this. So speaking of real estate, do you remember and can you tell me about your first house, the first real estate you did as a licensed real estate professional?
0: Sure. I had gone to work for Hearth Real Estate. They had sold me personally a pair of flats. And so I had finished that and decided, okay, what am I going to do? I had a broker's license because I had an MBA. And I guess you could do it then. I don't know if you can do it now. But I was sitting there one morning and a guy walked in and he said, I'd like to see this building around the corner, maybe at the after work. And I said, okay, great. Showed it to him. He said, this doesn't work at all. And I had done something that Ray Hearth told me, ah, nobody does that. First of all, way back when, maybe you learned something. I'm sure you have learned a lot. There were two multiple listing services, two MLSs. Really? Yep. Yeah. And uh, basically, the upper market was the dividing line. Let's call it Market Street, the dividing line, everything north of market, which included the Castro, if you will wasn't hard and fast line, was in the MLS that we have now. And the other one was called, oh, gee, something similar. And it was out in the Excelsior. And so you had to belong to both multiples to get everything. So I had joined the second multiple and gotten a thing, and I said, hey, they have like a breakfast. And Ray Hurst said, no, don't go out there. So I had gone out there, and I went out anyway, and these people were pitching their listings. And this guy said, I've got this listing at 29th and Sanchez, and blah, blah, blah. So I get in my car and go home, go back to Earth, and I drive by it. And it's a semi-fixer, big, uh, a six-room, peak roof Victorian. So the people said, well, you know, this house that you showed us, doesn't fit. It was over on around the corner on Eighteenth Street between Eighteenth uh, and uh, near Dolores. I said, "Well, I've got another one. If you want to take a look at it," and they said, "Great." And so I gave them the address, and they called me back and they said, "I'd like to see it." Well, ultimately, that was my first sale.
1: What year was this?
0: Nineteen seventy-six. Before you
1: were born, maybe a year after. Close. Just about. <laughs> just about. I
2: remember nineteen seventy-six. Matt was just a babe in arms at that time. I think.
1: So did the deal go smoothly or was it a hot mess of disclosures and challenges? No. Well, first of
0: all, back then the whole offer form was only one page long. When they said, let's put it together, I said, great. And I said, let's meet back here at Hearth Real Estate. And then I'm driving back and said, holy crap, what do I do now? I'm going to have to figure this one out. So we got in there and Ron Bansomer was still in. And so I just walked him in, walked the people back and sat him down. And I said, Ron, This is Susie and John Smith, and the Smiths, this is Mr. Bantzmer. He'll be doing the the offer form for you. And Ron looked at me, and I kind of gave him a little wink, and (laughs) and he said, okay. (laughs) So we put the form in the typewriter, and they typed it out. And and he says, well, you know, we got all done. Do you want to have an inspection? And the people looked at me, and they said, should we have an inspection? I said, yeah, 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 you should have an inspection. That's the way it went, first deal.
1: Wow. Do you
0: remember what the price was? 29000
2: <laughs> The first house I bought was in 1991. And it was the year after I graduated from college. And this was in Austin, Texas. And I paid, I think,
0: $32,000 for it. Maybe you should have kept that one too, huh? We all talk about that.
1: but
2: Yeah, that one, actually, I looked it up online the other day just to see. And it's worth about 500 now, I think. And I sold it probably 20 years ago for like 150 or something like
0: that.
1: And rolled all of that into your San Francisco properties that did just fine.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So I overshot something. You have another question farther on that says, you know, tell me about your first house. And the first house I bought is kind of an interesting conundrum here because Trudy kept telling me about this guy and she'd have lunch. Trudy worked at Citizen Savings back before it was First Nationwide and before it was absorbed. And um, she was the assistant to the treasurer. And this guy that was the controller would have lunch with her. She said, you know, he's really a nice guy and, you know, you'd like him and great. And so I said, well, you know, where does he live? And she says, oh, I don't know. I think he lives on 22nd Street in Noe Valley. So I said, when we got ready to look at houses. I said, ask him if he's got a realtor. Trudy so gave back, says, yeah, his partner. And I went, perfect. Well, Ron Bansmer was his partner. Ron Bansimer, who's at Hearth Real Estate. So we found the house, had a for sale sign on it. It's a long story, but literally in that era of 1976, it was right when things were going from nothing selling to everything selling. You didn't pay over price, but the sales were expanding rapidly. I said to Ron, well, find out the information on this house. And he called me back and he said, can you wait a couple of days before I show it to you? And I said, sure. Why? He said, well, the listing is expiring. And he said, they've had it listed for two years. The listing's expiring. And maybe I can slip in there and I can get both ends of the deal. And I said, okay, here's the deal, Ron. You can do whatever you want. Don't screw this deal up for two ends of a house. And it was listed for, by the way, 29.5. No, thirty dollars And so it happened. We got in there. We made an offer. And we got it for twenty nine. And then it needed a new roof. And so I got it for 27000 It was a five and a four with a garage on the 23rd between Dolores and Chattanooga.
1: Wow. It was a mess. What attracted you to units?
0: Trudy and I, no kids. I thought we'd live upstairs in the big five and have somebody downstairs to
1: pay the mortgage. When you rented out the lower one, do you remember what the first rent you got for it was? After I fixed it up, maybe two forty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's two hundred and forty dollars to you, sir. So you did this first deal. You had, you know arrived in California.
0: Did the first deal? We worked on it uh, together. Weekends, nights, during the day. And then uh, ultimately, 10 months later, we put it on the market. And uh, I said, I had a broker's license at that point, but I didn't have it with anybody. And Ron said, well, you know, are you going to give me the listing? And I said, yes, I'm going to give you the listing. Let me try it for a weekend myself. I said, I'd like to see what's going on here. And we had talked about me coming to work at Hearth. So I tried it and I'll be damned if it didn't work and I sold it. And then I went back to Ron and he sold me something else of which I still own, which was three-unit building on 24th Street. So I bought it for 27 ish and I sold it for 62 in 10 months, but I had to do literally all the work. It was a flip, I guess you'd call it today.
1: Did you do a bunch more flips after that? I
0: did. At that point, I think I put my license at Hearth Real Estate, and I said to Mr. Hearth, I'll come here on one question that I have that needs to be answered. And he said, and I have a good question for you too. And I said, okay, here's my question. Are you going to join both multiple listing services? Because he had only joined the one out in the Excelsior. And I said, you know, you can't expect to run a operation only (laughs) belonging to this other one. A San Francisco board is twice as three times as big. So he said, yeah, I'll do that. And then he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, do you mind working with most people that are gay? <laughs> and I said, no. Do you have a problem with me? He said, oh, no, no. There's, there's at least one or two other straight people in the, in the office. And I said, okay, good. Let's move on. Give me a desk. Give me a telephone. Get out of my way.
2: So what year was that?
0: Nineteen seventy-six.
2: You've had a very long and illustrious career in real estate, Bill. What would you say is your professional accomplishment that you're most proud of?
0: Here's what I think the deal is. It takes a little explaining. You know, I didn't get into this business having a lot of money, and uh, in fact, I had no money. And my wife and I both had MBAs, and I worked while she went and got her MBA, and then she was working, and while I got my broker's license and started the rehabs and things like that. So it was going to work for both of us. But when I started Zephyr, it was myself and three other partners. And it was a little scary, but I had my wife's income to fall back on. And we thought we could offer something just a little different than what we got at Hearth and and all the neighborhood realtors. They're all gone. And so is Hearth for that matter. So four of us were sitting upstairs at Hearth Real Estate and Tom Prevey said, I think we ought to start our own company. And I said, well, I got the place and I just showed it. I've got the keys and we went up and bought it. So what I'm more most proud of, I think, is taking three guys and myself starting a real estate company and, and at Zenith, I guess we were 350 agents and 50 support staff. So my partners didn't want to manage. They just wanted to sell. I wanted to sell, but I could see that You you know, the first month we closed deals and we went, well, where's our bank? What are we doing? You know, accounting 101, property management 101, right? General management 101. So I just took it on and then ultimately just worked my way in. I'm very proud of that.
2: As you should be. Now, are you completely retired now?
0: Yes, except I still own some of the shares in the company that bought me. Gotcha.
1: So, of the four founding Zephyr partners, you're the only one who survived through the 1980s, correct? Yes, sir. What was that like? I mean, living through the AIDS pandemic and the Castro, you are a San Francisco resident, you're a real estate broker, you're running an office. You know, I know how what this last year has been like, and I'm curious what it was like then for you. You know, as you know, AIDS, unlike
0: COVID, there are certain things that have to happen to get AIDS as opposed to just being in the wrong place to get COVID. So we lost many, many agents. Two dozen maybe had died from the period of 76 through 85. As soon as the cocktail was gotten and people were able to stabilize themselves, we went out and got a disability policy. (laughs) <laughs> the first year there was like 19 people on the disability policy and they said, that's it. We're canceling you. <laughs> I said, okay. They said, you're not supposed to have 19 people at disability in 10 months.
1: I said, okay, I get it. Wow. Did you ever just want to give up, like close up shop, go sell somewhere else or San Francisco just of you at that point?
0: No. At that point, gee, I lived on 24th Street for a while. And then I moved up on Greystone Terrace. And so I would just fall down the hill to the office. So I went, no, no, I'm going to make this work. It was hard. It was very hard. Because on top of real estate being hard and being new guys with a brand new company that we then quickly transformed into the AIDS problem. And people were getting sick. And my two partners, actually, Uh, One died of cancer and the other two died of AIDS. And it was very difficult. And we didn't have it together to the extent that we should have as an example of key man insurance or how that we did it. We wrote a, not a business plan, but an exit strategy of what happens if, and this was even before the AIDS thing. And and of course, the IRS (laughs) contested it. So to make a long story short, I spent many, many years that I should have been expanding the business. Just paying off the estates of the three partners that were deceased—that was difficult. All of the cash flow would come in, and instead of taking it, I just turn around and write three checks out. So difficult.
2: So you mentioned at the beginning things were hard, and things have obviously changed a whole lot in real estate. Do you think real estate in general is harder or easier, or a combination these days compared to when you started out?
0: Well. It's easier in some instances. An example, if you can list a piece of property today, you're going to sell it, assuming that you're not crazed and the owner is not crazed, you're going to sell it and probably or possibly with multiple offers. Back in when I started in 75 and 76 and 77, the thought was, well, either get a six-month listing or at least get an expression that after the 90-day listing expires, they'll relist that for you. Because that's what it took. There was no inflation at that point in time. So it had to sell for what it was worth without multiple offers. I mean, it was probably 1979 or 1980 before there were multiple offers that I'd ever even heard of. And Hearth Real Estate came up with it, (laughs) believe it or not. Oh, really? Yeah. How so? They had a guy that was a client of theirs that was very wealthy and When they would get offers, and maybe there were two or three offers, which was a big deal, not 20 or 30 or
1: something I read in the paper of
0: 225
1: in Sacramento. I have to interrupt. Being the agent that has to call back 224 people and tell them that they didn't get the house is not a fun job.
0: I never thought of that. In fact, yeah, it's a great thought. How about just putting the paper together and trying to go
1: through the paperwork. It's miserable. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, that's another issue we should talk about. Because literally, when I went to the, my first CAR, NAR, San Francisco Board of Realtors, they talked about, you know, it's just around the corner, paperless. It's just around the corner. That was in the mid-70s. And, you know, go to the title company. Maybe you can do it remotely, but ultimately you get a bunch of
1: paper. That corner is apparently 50 years long. All right. So we're back to Hearth and this very, very wealthy guy. You've got a couple offers. So he put an offer
0: in on a building and they would come back and counter, I guess, all of them. Or they would come back and say, give us your last best and final. And he would raise the price, you know, five or eight thousand or ten thousand dollars more than the list price. And I said, How can you do that? And Ron Bansomer was his agent, and he said, Well, we think so. And that's how it started. You know, somebody said, Gee, I listed it at 229, and you're going to pay me 239 for six units? Wow. All right. So that's at least to my knowledge where it started. Now, I'm sure there were other people. And obviously realtors are not dumb. It doesn't take long to lose a deal when somebody counters over the purchase price to realize that, Hey, if they do it, I can do it.
1: And off to the races, San Francisco listing agents went, right? Yeah. Off to the races, 1980.
2: I went off on a tangent there, but you were describing that it's easier. Now. One of the things that's easier is if you list it, it'll sell. If you list it, price correctly, is
0: there anything that you think that's harder? Well, I think representing a buyer And the buyer says, she said, like a South Garden, Noe Valley, six room house with a garage. And oh, by the way, I don't want to have any competition. I just want to be able to walk in there and pay the price. And, you know, it's like it's not going to happen. And they
2: need a barn for the unicorn that they're going to ride in. Right.
0: So from that standpoint, representing buyers is a lot harder because your idea of having to represent the buyer and take home the bacon, if you will, that's great. But how about the other nine or 10 offers that didn't get it? And then it continues on and on and on. And you all of a sudden find yourself saying, you know, either we're not doing this right, or I don't know, am I in the right business? Because I've written 20 offers and I haven't gotten anything. So... I think that portion is harder. I think doing the escrow is no easier, no harder. It's a little bit easier in that we have DocuSign and things like that so that you don't have to run yourself around getting original signatures. But I'll give that portion of the escrow. It's a little bit easier. Buyers harder, sellers easier.
2: I remember back when I started, and even for the first several years, and I started 20 years ago, to get a disclosure package, I'd have to drive across town. They handed them out on paper. Yeah.
0: Well, guess what? There weren't disclosure packages back in 1980. There was nothing. Yeah. Go do it yourself. And then you'd say, well, wait a minute. I think for sure we ought to have a termite report because back then, our side of town originally didn't do termite reports. And I sat down with Bill Jansen, who the old. President of Pacific Union, and he said, "Boy, it's going to come to your side. You guys need to do these termite reports because you just can't say as is, as is, and you are going to get sued." And all of a sudden, it started. So we started. So our disclosure package was, you know, like I am trying to remember when we had to write a TDS. I think it was in the mid seventies. So the disclosure package was the seller's TDS and a termite report. I said,
1: because when you started in seventy 76- six. Prop 13 hadn't even become law, and uh, dual agency hadn't become law. Everyone was working as a sub-agent of the seller. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Completely different world. People thought that
0: was worse than it is. Thank goodness for CAR, they were able to wordsmith that around. But I agree. Uh, There was none of that. But the TDS was the big thing. And that was a – we went, what? What? How did we know that there was a slide there?
1: Well, the sellers knew and didn't tell anybody. I'm guessing when you filled out your first TDS, you didn't use your own Avid form. You just filled it on those three little lines on page three.
0: Uh, You know what? I can tell you today that there's people that still do that. They're old timers and some of them used to work
2: for us. Hi,
1: Tim. (laughs)
2: I received one from a listing agent once and his avid was agent notes that the property is exceptionally large.
1: He's a very observant agent there.
2: Yeah, it was pretty funny.
1: I remember, Bill, you mentioned when you started at Hearth, Mr. Hearth asked you if you had a problem working with gay men or or gay people. Um, And you were like, no, no deal. Where's my desk? And I'm curious, you know, you came from the Midwest, Uh, you went to college on a wrestling scholarship, you're a veteran of the armed forces. Did you ever get pushback from members of the gay community like what are you doing in our neighborhood
0: you know back then the castro was the castro but there were still irish bars it was mixed it was heavily gay but still mixed so i don't remember anybody giving me any pushback and you know i'd sit around somebody say hey i'm going to lunch you want to go and i said yeah where are you going to go well let's go over here so never had a problem whatsoever none zero
1: Zephyr was always known for incredible involvement in the community. And did that grow out of something that came before the AIDS crisis? Or was it something that happened as a part of caring for agents in that process? Or has it just always been a core value of yours? I think it's a core value. And
0: certainly the, the AIDS pandemic brought it home to roost as opposed to, you know, the March of Dimes or something. It's sort of like taking care of your own. And uh there were people that said, well, I with all due respect, you like uh, one, two, and three, but how about if I give my money to three, four, and five? And we went, okay, we'll do that. So we would set up that matching fund, and many companies then followed us, I or maybe they were doing it, I don't know. But uh, we had that done, and people could, you know, they're into dogs, and they, so they sent it to the animal welfare, and that was fine with us. We had a couple that were out there but we went ahead and matched them. And that's it. And I just felt it was part of the culture and it certainly didn't hurt us. And if maybe we'd get a listing or a client, but so be it if we didn't, it made me feel better.
1: And one of the charities that you've been the biggest supporters of over the years is the Meritus Fund. You want to tell us a little bit about the Meritus Fund? Well, sure. First of all, the Meritus Fund has been merged
0: into napa sonoma and marin county it's now called Ten Thousand degrees and that just happened in the last year or so but be that as it may Trudy and i were talking and we said how can we do this everybody's got a non-profit there's this there's that there's this all my god there must have been and maybe still are 20 aids type charities and i said yeah how do we do this So we figured out, well, let's see, what's the problem? And I have always thought the problem was people not getting an education so that they could think for themselves and figure out life for themselves. So I said, wouldn't it be great if we could find a place that we could give our money and that they would send kids to school? I remember telling my dad my junior year in high school, I think I'm going to go to college. And he never even looked up and he says, I hope you got a scholarship in line. Cause I don't got no money for you, so that's that's how it started, and I've remembered that my whole life. And so I thought, gee, you know, some of these kids, and Meredith, of course. Well, I thought that, and then about three weeks later, an agent in our office, Sherry Malone. You remember Sherry? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, Sherry stood up and said, "I've got the greatest charity," and she went on to explain and what Meredith was, and gave all of the you know, first and go to college. They're not the 4.5 students, but they're very good students. They need help because they're, you know, single mothers or both working in Chinatown as uh, cooks and waiters. So I came back and said to Trudy, this is great. So I actually went on my own and contacted them and talked to Sherry. And that's how it started. I went to the, the very first, at least for me, it was probably the third or fourth Meredith presentation. A little girl got up and she said, um, I'm going to UCLA. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd love to have my parents here to help me and congratulate them for what they did. She said, but my entire family's in jail. I'm the only one that's not in jail. Oh my God. And so and they had a question and answer and afterwards. And I said, well, how did you do it? And she said, I slept on friends' couches until I outlived my usefulness at that particular family. And then I would go to another one. She said, we're immigrants. We knew nobody here. So that's how I started with Meredith. And there were people that embraced it. And it was okay if they didn't. Everybody has their own little deal. So we've given a great deal of money over the years to them. It's a
2: great organization.
1: It is. Of all the various roles you've played in real estate over the years, you've done some flipping, you've done some development, you've done sales management, you know, you've built an office from one and to five, six, seven across the city. What part of it did you enjoy the most? Being a
0: uh, broker manager, I enjoyed that the
1: most. It was also the most frustrating. You
0: know, I was the guy that said, if something happens and you need a friend, give me a call. By the way, it's got to be real estate oriented. (laughs) And so did I get a couple of calls at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night? Yeah, I did. But I asked for it. And that was it. I liked that the most. What I liked the least, frankly, was when people would leave. And it was my expectation that I had to work so hard to keep people there. And I understand that, but there's, and with you two accepted, most people that were leaving just to leave, frankly, pissed me off because I thought I failed somehow. But on the other hand, if somebody goes off, to start their own company. I think that's a great idea. I'd say, how can I say that that's bad when I went ahead and did it?
2: For what it's worth, it was a really, really, really hard decision, Bill, for us. So we've always had the greatest amount of respect for you and what you built at Zephyr.
1: Did you get a sense of satisfaction watching many of those who left Boomerang back right to you? Well, you know, that did happen and has
0: happened. And I hope as far as uh, Corcoran that it would do the same thing because we're still the same basic organization. We're Zephyr heavy at this point, I guess you'd call it, because there's all kinds of other groups coming in and taking their name. So, but it's still the same Zephyr crowd, although the Zephyr crowd is getting a little older. At some point I went, when in the heck do I go? It's time. And in this particular instance, It was just the confluence. And the interesting thing was that uh, Compass was in the mix at that point. And of course, they bought uh, Paragon, they bought Pacific Union, two companies that I thought were going to be there way longer than I. And I went, oops, what's wrong with this picture? And then this deal popped up and the guy, you know, he's not 70, he's not 60, he's not 50, he's like 45 years old. So I was thrilled that we were able to to do that and turn it around. And we haven't lost anybody because of it, I think. And certainly the staff are all viable. And that's important to have a viable staff.
1: One of the things I've always respected about you is I've always felt that Zephyr went out of their way to take care of their staff and pay them well and and take care of them. And being staff in a real estate office is a horrible job.
0: I know. I agree, except uh, for the Christmas party when the staff would go back to work after having a couple of gins. (laughs) (laughs) You go, oh my goodness, things are not going to get done this afternoon.
2: Oh, one day a year, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what everybody said.
2: Yeah, for sure. You've had a very long and very successful career in real estate, and uh, we've talked about a lot of different things here today. Is there anything else? I mean, we hear from sometimes young people who say that they want to get into real estate and they listen to our podcast because they just like to learn about it this way. Would you have anything that you'd like to say to someone who's thinking about getting into real estate or someone who's thinking (laughs) about getting out of real estate, maybe?
0: I guess my advice would be understand what you're doing which is, yes, you're going to be a real estate agent, but it's more than that. You're going into business for yourself. And if you're counting on Corcoran or Caldwell Banker or Compass to help you, that is not the right business plan. And to that end, you need to have a written business plan. And I am a firm believer of that. And one of the things that I used to do, you know, there would be some problem that would come up around when there were commission split adjustments and somebody'd say, I need to talk to you about this. And I'd say, okay, how about tomorrow? And then I'd go and realize that he had missed a commission split by a dollar fifty, and that he was going to be sitting down there for an extra quarter, which is what we do. Or we don't do it anymore, but we did. And so... <laughs> I would say, oh, by the way, when you come, I need you to bring your business plan. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, you know, they'd show up with a scratchy business plan that they had written 10 minutes before they came to the office meeting and they wanted to know why I couldn't get the better split. And I said, because you don't have a business plan. You don't even know what you've done wrong. You don't know what you've done right. So that's what I would say to a new person. And if they say, well, we don't know how to do that, there's plenty of people, including most successful agents and or ways that you can find how to write a successful business plan. And the cool thing about it is it's like a living thing. And if you say, I'm going to hold an open house every week this summer, and you find out that you're not very good at holding open houses, well, then take it off. But you got to put something back on unless you, of course, can do it without having Holding open houses at all now. This is post COVID, huh? <laughs> that we actually have open houses
1: someday far into the future. Brit and I have had our brokerage for a little over three years now, and when I look back, there have been some tremendous learning opportunities for me along the way. Usually, unexpected learning opportunities called mistakes. Looking back, was there like a a mistake at this point that you're really, you know, thankful for that really taught you something or kind of really stuck with you?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that I ever made was I had two agents in the office that when Sacramento got hot, they said, we're going up there and we're quitting. We're going to go up there and we're going to make a billion dollars. Don't you want to open an office in Sacramento? And naively, I said, yes. And then it occurred to me all of the expenses of opening an office. And we did, lost my you know what. And then, of course, what I didn't realize because I hadn't done my homework was that uh, when Sacramento, the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And in between is very quick. So I realized, number one, what I should have done is to say, I'm going to sell you guys a franchise for Sacramento County. And you guys can, you know, give me a couple of hundred bucks on every deal and you can keep it all. And that would have taken care of it because I, (laughs) all I would have invested was the attorney's fees. So that was my biggest mistake. And there was nothing worse. I had three partners, all three of them went bankrupt. And I went up there and I hired two guys and we were personally, was going to take all the office furniture out and get the paintings and all this stuff. I walked in, it had been completely ransacked, ransacked. All that was left were the desks, but I mean, the the lights were gone. The phone system was gone. Oh, it was awful. And all I kept saying is driving that U-Haul back, this is what you get when you don't do your homework. This is what you get when you don't do your homework. So can you make a mistake? Yes, I did.
2: You bounced back, though.
0: I did. It was, But that was crap, you know, and going up there when there were problems. And I'm saying, why did I do this? I don't want to drive to Sacramento. Water over the dam. We made it. I took all the desks. I put them downstairs at 17th Street, and we used them over the years.
1: (laughs) I had no idea there was ever a Zephyr Sacramento.
0: There you go. There you go. Didn't work well didn't do my homework, didn't do my written business plan, you know, which is why I can stand up on a desk and scream and yell when people say, I don't need one. And I said, well, you don't need one now, but you don't even know why you're doing well. Well, I do. I've got these people that call me. Well, so write it down. What percent of your total gross income are you getting from this, you know, referral business? Well, I don't know. And it varies. (laughs) Okay. Let's write it down. Let's figure it out. Let's get you to the next step. True story. Yes, I lost my butt up there.
1: (laughs) Back in San Francisco, square footage and whether or not it exists or is just advertised has always been an area that agents and brokers have gotten in trouble with. You've just had a very kind of I love your approach to it when someone asks, you know, how big is something? It's as big as it is. (laughs) You have kind of just a very plain spoken and blunt forwardness about kind of real estate and what it is and and it isn't. And it's not mean or arrogant or anything like that. But other than, you know, square footage and it it is what it is, are there any other kind of just obvious statements you feel like you need to make for real estate that people sometimes forget?
0: Yeah. By the way, back to the square footage, probably as a brokerage, have been sued more on that than anything else. The agents rubbing their hands together want an 800-square-foot building to be an expansive 1,300-square-foot unit and finding any way to do it. I had a friend measure it, you know, those crazy things. And then when it comes back, they're looking over their shoulder. Who, me? (laughs) So I think that was the the biggest scar in my back. And then I said, we can't do it. And then people would come and have every reason to why they need to put it on there. And of course, the 3R report's wrong, of course. Did they think about getting it right? No. Were they measuring an in-law and then trying to include it in? Probably, I don't know. So anyway, let let me go on. I basically have four things that I tell everybody. And they're very simple. And I find I could, or I could, answer 80% of the questions that people came to me with. And the first one is a uh, buyer is a buyer who buys, a seller is a seller who sells. The bottom line is the bottom line and do what you do best. Those are four things. And when people come to me on transactions, that's the buyer and seller thing. And it's like, well, what do you mean you showed somebody 28 things and and they haven't gotten any of them? Are they a buyer? Well, what do you mean? Of course they're a buyer. Did you get them pre-qualified? No, well, you know, whatever it is. I know the market's different. But if you ask the questions and then are you working with the wrong people? You know, are they really buyers? the same thing from a seller standpoint. Well, I took it at 50000 more than it was supposed to be. But they promised me. Well, did they put it in writing? Well, no. Well, why not? What happens if they say no after you've busted your ass and spent God knows how much in advertising? So a seller is a seller who sells. And if somebody wants 120 cents on the dollar and they won't accept less, they're not a seller. you got to wait until inflation gets you to be a seller. I normally start that. sounds very simple, but then it gets uh, kind of complicated when you start asking the questions.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, I remember you saying all of those things at sales meetings. So
0: there. Well, I learned the hard way, you know, it was like, God, I have, the same questions over and over and over again. I can't believe I can't get this sold. The price is too high.
2: I remember when I was pretty new, definitely less than a year in, maybe like six to eight months in, I fired some buyer clients of mine and Elsa was so proud of me because they were like I sat down to write an offer with them and I remember all they wanted to know is how many points they had to get out. And this was back when we had those folders in the file drawer and I would pull out an offer, you know, you pull out the offer folder and handwrite the offer. And I remember I just said, I don't think you guys are ready to buy. And they were like, no, we are, we are. And I said, well, all you're asking me about is how you can cancel this you're not ready. We're not going to write this offer. And I remember I told Ilsa that and she was practically jumping up and down, clapping. You get it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you know what? If you approach it right, you feel better. You know, you've been hassling these buyers for months or and now they're off your back and you can move on. I remember working with a guy and he wanted this jumbo junior four On a south lot and with a garage and blah, blah, blah. It was so complicated, I couldn't even search for it. I mean, there was too many variables. So finally, I said, okay, I've shown you everything. I got to push you back. And I didn't say this, but got to put them back on the back burner because I've got other buyers and sellers I got to deal with. And if one comes up, I'll jump on it. And then it was, well, why aren't you calling me? Why aren't you showing me stuff? There is no stuff. Finally, I got to the point where I went, well, you know what? Don't call me anymore. I'll call you if I find one. And it was so bizarre. There were probably three in the city that would fit. So it took me a long time to get to that point.
2: When we start out in this business, we feel like we have to try to keep every single client. But I don't think that's true.
0: And I used to see this one buyer and he would, you know, I mostly worked the upper market and he would show up. Every open house, whenever I had an open house, and he would say that the listing was overpriced. And finally, I said, what are you wasting your Sundays for? I said, you're never going to be a buyer. The market keeps passing you by. Pull the trigger. Oh, no, I don't like the bathroom color. Well, get out.
1: I think perhaps one of the truisms I've learned over the years is that you can fix anything about a house, but its location.
0: If you got enough money. And speaking of that, what I tell people is the bottom line is the bottom line. So if you've got to work it out and the commission has to come in play and you can't get it from anybody else, you got to do that or not. But the bottom line works for you. And when you want to spend some money on farming and you figure out how much it's costing you and you need to say, well, wait a minute, I spent $12,000 last year on farming or $122,000 last year on farming and I made $80,000. Is that good? Well, it's a good if you only spent 12. It's bad if you spent 120. So as an entrepreneur and owning your own business, you've got to make those decisions. Just like if you had a boss, take that to your boss and say, hey, listen, we've got to spend a dollar to make a nickel. Well, that's not going to work.
2: That math doesn't last for long.
0: I was just going to do the last one that you do what you do best. People would come to me and they were brand new agents and they'd say, listen, I've got this hotel I want to list. I would kind of hang my head and I'd say, well, you know, there's a problem here. You haven't done a deal yet. And I'm trying to make it sound worse than it is. But it was similar to that. I had an agent that one time said, oh, my friends want to go to Marin. And I said, well, you've only done three or four deals and you're going to go to Marin. And it's going to take, no, 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 I want to do it. You know, they're buyers. They get all cash. And so he ran and spent, you know, six weeks learning Marin dropped everything in San Francisco. And ultimately they walked into an open house and bought it direct. (laughs) I could see it coming from a mile away. And I said, you know, Jerry, you don't do Marin well. Do what you do best. You don't sell restaurants and bars. Do what you do best. If you want to edge into it, fine, edge into it. But give yourself a year or two or three or four just selling the normal stuff. Condos and homes and TICs.
2: There you go. I asked you earlier if you are hundred percent retired. And I know that you had sort of eased your way out. You know, you started scaling back and now it sounds like you have moved on to full retirement. Was it hard to leave the business after all these years or were you ready?
0: Well, it was both. <laughs> was it hard? It was somewhat difficult because I thought of Zephyr as my baby but it had gotten big enough and I had started taking days off that I could let go if the right deal came by. I think we've made the right decision here, but I didn't know when to quit. Sort of, you know, I'm 76 years old. And at what point do you say enough is enough? Especially when I see my brother retired at 55, I go, what's wrong with this deal? So I feel okay with it. Do I see decisions being made that I probably would have maybe second guessed or Thought about it a little bit more, yeah, not, but not a big deal so far. We've been running pretty parallel with what I would do. He's a very smart guy, and he ran uh, two companies that were huge. He ran the first team down in North LA, and he ran HER in Columbus, which was a statewide company. So he was ready, and he had the money. So he's bought a bunch of stuff. Well,
2: I think unless you have any other pearls of wisdom for us, I don't know about you, Matt, but I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Bill. It's been a while. It has.
0: Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate this uh, thinking of me. You've been listening to Escore Out Loud, the SF Real Estate Podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast news with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast.